Hello and welcome to this installment of Easy Law. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke. I'm a Phoenix attorney as well. We explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this program. Easy Law came about to provide Arizona legal news for Sun Sounds of Arizona, the nonprofit reading service for people with disabilities which make it difficult for them to read or hold printed materials. It's broadcast the third Saturday of each month at 11 a.m., other installments available on demand. Our Arizona'sLaw.org website is independent of SunSounds, but our prime focus is to support SunSounds, which, by the way, is a service of the Rio Salado Community College, along with KJZZ and KBAQ radio stations. Our website has links to SunSounds and KJZZ and KBAQ and information on how you can become a member of them, and we urge you to do so. Our website is, again, Arizona'sLaw.org. AZ Law, as you may know, is available not only for download at our website, but on iTunes podcasts, Google Play Music and podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, everywhere you get your podcasts, you can search for us, AZ Law, you can listen to us, subscribe to us, and of course you can tell your friends to go do so as well. Lots of articles to get to this week. Let's go ahead and get started. Our first article is from the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. Ninth Circuit refuses to vacate criminal contempt verdict against Joe Arpaio because Trump pardon came before sentencing. Arpaio sees victory in the reasoning. Former Sheriff Joe Arpaio's criminal contempt verdict cannot be vacated simply because President Donald Trump pardoned him, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled. The panel unanimously affirmed the District Court Judge Susan Bolton's decision that the sheriff appealed. Arpaio's attorneys are declaring a victory. Confused? Well, the devil is in the details, and the details are in the wording. Judge Bolton conducted a five-day trial in July 2017 and ended up concluding that Arpaio was guilty of criminal contempt of court. She set the sentencing for October of that year. However, in August, President Trump pardoned his friend. Arpaio's attorneys asked that Judge Bolton vacate her finding of guilt. She declined, and the U.S. Department of Justice took the sheriff's side. The Ninth Circuit appointed an independent attorney to thus represent the prosecution's usual role, and the sheriff unsuccessfully appealed that appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court determined that Judge Bolton's ruling stands and that the verdict is not vacated. However, the appellate judges took what they called a slightly different path to reach the same decision that Bolton had, noting that the sheriff's attorneys clarified their appeal at oral argument. The court states that Judge Bolton could have said that Arpaio's challenge to the finding of guilt is moot because the finding cannot be used in the future. In other words, no future preclusive effect, to use the legal term. Arpaio attorney Jack Willinchick told Arizona's law that they will not try to return to the U.S. Supreme Court because we won. He explained that the court gave us exactly what we asked for, which is a finding that the guilty verdict is meaningless as a matter of law. Willinchick acknowledges that the ruling will not necessarily prevent Arpaio opponents from continuing to state that he was found guilty of criminal contempt, even though it doesn't have a preclusive effect in any possible future cases. It should, he tells Arizona's law, prevent media outlets from writing that Arpaio was convicted. 
Here is what the Ninth Circuit judges had to say on that subject. Though colloquially we refer to the district court's finding of guilt as a conviction, in reality, Arpaio never suffered a final judgment of conviction for criminal contempt. Final judgment in a criminal case means sentence. The sentence is the judgment. Here, the issuing of a presidential pardon and Arpaio's acceptance of the pardon preempted his sentencing. Thus, there is no final judgment of conviction in this case. Instead, there was a final judgment of dismissal with prejudice. This lack of a final judgment of conviction precludes the attachment of any legal consequences, such as a sentencing enhancement in any subsequent criminal case or claim or issue preclusion in a civil case. Arpaio is running for the Republican nomination to regain his sheriff's badge in November. And the morning that that ruling came down from the Ninth Circuit, February 27th, uh, there was also this commentary from Arizona Republic columnist Elvia Diaz. And the headline is, Justice Works, Former Sheriff Joe Arpaio's Criminal Contempt Verdict Still Stands. Here's what she wrote about it. Federal judges in San Francisco have refused to vacate former Sheriff Joe Arpaio's criminal contempt verdict. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals' unanimous decision issued Thursday offers justice for so many in Maricopa County. Arpaio could appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, though surely those judges have more important cases to consider than dealing with the vanity of a former 87-year-old sheriff. But hey, you never know with Arpaio. His thirst to be in the spotlight has no limits, and he may do it just to grab headlines as he pursues his bid to return to the sheriff's office after voters ousted him four years ago. Arpaio was found guilty of criminal contempt in 2017 after disobeying a judge's order to stop work immigration raids, costing Maricopa County taxpayers tens of millions of dollars in legal and court fees over his penchant to racially profile Latinos. Federal judges ruled that a lower court did not make a mistake in dismissing Arpaio's case with prejudice, so that's good for Arpaio because it won't have any future legal consequences. The district court's judgment dismissing Arpaio's criminal proceeding with prejudice and denying vacature of the finding of guilt is affirmed, the ruling noted, because Arpaio's challenges to the district court's finding of guilt are moot, we do not address them. Arpaio's attorney Jack Willinchick claimed victory in a statement, saying the court gave us exactly what we wanted, which is a finding that the guilty verdict is void. He can spin it however he wants, but the fact remains that Arpaio's contempt verdict stands. President Trump pardoned him. Arpaio wanted his criminal contempt verdict thrown out. The federal judges said no, and that should give Latinos a huge sense of relief. To many, Arpaio has become a symbol of racism that could spread like wildfire if not rooted out. Thursday's court decision is a light of hope that checks and balances remain strong. And that was the commentary from Elvia Diaz in the Arizona Republic. Headline, Justice Works, former Sheriff Joe Arpaio's criminal contempt verdict still stands. Well, let's move to another case. And this article from AZ Law is uh, dated, I think it was February 28th. Supreme Court affirms Arizona death sentence for James McKinney on 5-4 to four vote. 
The U.S. Oh, this is U.S. Supreme Court. That is the U.S. Supreme Court today upheld the Arizona death penalty sentence for murderer James McKinney in a divided five to four vote. The majority sided with the Arizona Attorney General's office that McKinney did not need to be resentenced to take into account his childhood-caused PTSD. Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote the majority opinion, and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the equally brief dissent. Kavanaugh dismisses the defendant's argument that the Arizona Supreme Court reopened a direct review of the aggravating and mitigating factors. Kavanaugh agreed with the state's determination that its review in 2018 was a collateral review. But the premise of that argument is wrong because the Arizona Supreme Court's reweighing of the aggravating and mitigating circumstances occurred on collateral review, not direct review. In conducting the reweighing, the Arizona, this is a quote from the opinion, the Arizona Supreme Court explained that it was conducting an independent review in a collateral proceeding. The court cited its prior decision in State v. Stiers, which concluded that Arizona could conduct such an independent review in a collateral proceeding. Under these circumstances, we may not second-guess the Arizona Supreme Court's characterization of state law. Justice Ginsburg, in her dissent, pointed out that the Arizona Supreme Court had engaged in a direct review of the death sentence in 1996 and that its proceeding in 2018 amounted to another direct review. She writes that the death sentence is therefore invalid because the U.S. Supreme Court had struck down Arizona's then-existing death sentence regime as unconstitutional. That was in a case called Ring v. Arizona back in 2002, and that a jury should therefore Therefore, make the determination. After oral, oral argument in December, AZ Law had noted that Justice Kavanaugh had been the most involved justice in questioning both Arizona Solicitor General O.H. Skinner and the uh, Neil Katyal for the defense. AZ Law has reached out to both sides for comment and will update our article as warranted. That was the U.S. Supreme Court affirming Arizona death sentence for James McKinney on a 5-4 to four vote. Well, here's an article from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services, and this is dated March 5th. Headline is, Court Says Misapplied Law Allows Killers Chance at Parole. Some erroneous words used by judges 25 years ago could possibly result in the release of nearly 300 people who the law said should have been incarcerated for the rest of their lives. In a ruling March 5th, the Arizona Supreme Court acknowledged that a 1993 law eliminated the possibility of parole for any crimes committed after January 1 of 1994, and that legally speaking, should have resulted in Abelardo Chaparro being imprisoned for life for a murder that he committed in May of 1995. Only thing is, the judge sentenced Chaparro to life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Justice James Bean, writing for the unanimous Arizona Supreme Court this week, said that was legally wrong. But Bean pointed out that neither the prosecutor nor the defense attorney pointed that out at the time. Now, he said, it is too late. And what that means, Bean said, is that Chaparro is now eligible to seek parole. Technically speaking, the Supreme Court ruling affects only Chaparro, who challenged the refusal of the Department of Corrections to consider him for parole. But in legal papers filed with the court, that agency declared that there are approximately 290 inmates that may have sentences similar to Mr. Chaparro, and they can now use the precedent set in this case to seek their own parole eligibility. 
Drew Ensign, the state's deputy solicitor general, conceded to the court that there is no question but that the law was changed and parole was no longer an option. But like the proverbial tree falling in a forest, many failed to notice, Ensign wrote. Specifically, sentencing judges, prosecutors, and likely many defense attorneys all failed to account for the legislature's express and unequivocal abolition of parole, Ensign said, a few hundred times. Nothing in the court's order guarantees that Chaparro or any of the other perhaps 290 affected inmates actually will be freed. Instead, it allows them to try to convince the Board of Executive Clemency that they will be able to remain at liberty without violating the law and that the release is in the best interests of the state. But they now have the ability to try to make that case. There was no immediate response from the Department of Corrections. The facts in the case are not in dispute. Chaparro originally was sentenced to natural life, which would preclude the possibility of parole, but in a subsequent order, the judge removed the word natural and clarifies that the sentence was life without possibility of parole for 25 years. Bean rejected arguments that the trial judge failed to understand what he was doing. He pointed out that during sentencing, the trial judge told Chaparro that there were three sentencing options, death, life in prison until death, and life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Both sides also agree that the sentence imposed was illegally lenient because it violated the 1993 law. What that means, the Attorney General's office argued, is that the court cannot enforce it. Bean and the entire Arizona Supreme Court disagreed. Illegally lenient sentences are final under Arizona law, absent timely appeal or post-judgment motion, he wrote. One was not made, Bean said, meaning his illegally lenient sentence is final under Arizona law. What all that leaves is who else might get a chance at release. In arguments to the court, Ensign said this case arises from an unfortunate chapter in the history of the Arizona criminal justice system. Sentences allowing parole were imposed despite the fact the law was changed, but he argued that those sentences are legally void as contrary to the legislature's explicit abolishment of parole eligibility. The high court disagreed, saying any challenge now comes too late. Ensign also argued that trial judges who handed down sentences with the possibility of parole were unconstitutionally intruding on the turf of lawmakers who have the exclusive power to determine if parole is an option. But Bean said that, strictly speaking, the judges did no such thing. Rather than perform a legislative function, the trial court misapplied the law when it conferred parole eligibility, he wrote. Therefore, the trial court did not violate separation of powers by including, albeit incorrectly, parole eligibility in its sentenced order, nor does this court do so by upholding that sentence, which the state failed to appeal, Bean continued. Absent a timely appeal, the illegally lenient sentence must stand. The legislature has since restored the option of parole for those who were sentenced pursuant to a plea deal with such a stipulation, and that deal spelled out how many years the person would first have to serve. That article from Howard Fisher on March 5th, court says misapplied law allows killers chance at parole. 
Well, our next uh, article is from a Ninth Circuit case as well, and it was reported by us in Arizona'sLaw.org. Ninth Circuit rules Ducey's handling of late Senator McCain's seat constitutional. 27 months of appointments thus stand. The recent Arizona law allowing Governor Doug Ducey to set the special election to fill the late Senator John McCain's seat 27 months after his passing is not unconstitutional, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled. McCain died in August 2018, and the governor has been able to appoint John Kyle and then Martha McSally to each fill the office until a special election is held in November of this year to fill the remainder of the term. So the winner in November will have to run for re-election in 2022. Earlier in 2018, the legislature had passed a law setting up the system. Today, the court decided that Arizona's law did not violate either the 17th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, giving states the right to set the election laws for the Senate, nor the U.S. Supreme Court case that had previously found that a 29-month period between the vacancy and the, the election to fill it was not unconstitutional. Here's a snippet of the court's conclusion. We interpret the 17th Amendment in light of Valenti and Rodriguez, two of those earlier cases, to confer at least as much temporal discretion upon the states as was exercised by Arizona in its statute as applied to the vacancy created by Senator McCain's death. Given this authorization by the 17th Amendment, we further conclude that the vacancy election timing challenged here does not impermissibly burden the right to vote under the 1st and 14th Amendments. And we have not yet heard whether they plan to appeal that case to the U.S. Supreme Court, even though the election is this coming November, the special election is this coming November. They could just for future purposes, for future such vacancies, but we have not yet heard if they will. We'll let you know if they do. Our next article is from the Arizona Republic, reporter Aaron Stone. And this was published March 5th. Court orders EPA to take action on Arizona's plan to curb harmful air pollution. A federal district court has ordered the Environmental Protection Agency to approve a plan for Arizona to better address its dirty air, even as the state says air quality is improving. The EPA has missed dozens of deadlines under the Clean Air Act to approve or reject Arizona's plans to reduce air pollution in Metro Phoenix and across the state. The court order, issued by the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California in Oakland, will require the EPA to either approve a state-created plan or create its own plan for reducing ozone and particulate pollution across Arizona by June of 2021. The order cannot be appealed. The core point is that EPA has let this defective program that can result in people getting poisoned last for years, and now we finally have a de deadline where we know the problem will be fixed, said Robert Ukele, an attorney for the Center for Biological Diversity. The court's action follows a March 2019 lawsuit filed by the Center for Biological Diversity and the Center for Environmental Health challenging the EPA's failure to enforce Clean Air Act standards for harmful particulate matter and ozone pollution. Although Phoenix's ozone pollution is among the highest in the U.S., data provided by the Maricopa County Air Quality Department shows that the area's ozone reading fell 11.2 percent on average from 1990 to 2018. 
Last year in its annual State of the Air report, the American Lung Association ranked Phoenix as the seventh most ozone-polluted metropolitan area in the country. Ozone is a colorless, odorless gas that forms when nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds react in sunlight. In Arizona, vehicles are the biggest contributors to the pollutants that make up ozone. Combine a high volume of vehicle traffic in the sprawling metro area with the Arizona desert's sunshine, and the result is a recipe for ozone. Global heating only adds to the problem. Ozone production speeds up in higher temperatures. An average person breathes 7 to 8 liters of air per minute, which means with each breath of ozone or particulate matter, the risk for respiratory illness, heart disease, and even premature death increases. Children are even more at risk. They breathe 50% more air per, per kilogram of body weight, and their lungs are still developing, and thus are more sensitive to developing respiratory diseases like asthma. Air pollution has declined because of the Clean Air Act, but we need to make more progress because our population and transportation use keeps increasing, said Albert Brown, a senior lecturer and the director of environmental research initiatives at Arizona State University's Polytechnic campus during a recent talk about the health impacts of air pollution. In 2015, the EPA determined that the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality did not meet minimum federal standards for its air quality permitting process. The federal agency identified 14 substandard rules, including failing to monitor the impact of pollution on neighboring states from stationary sources within Arizona. The state agency also allowed certain exceptions on permits for agricultural and fuel-burning operations. ADEQ has already adopted rules to correct the deficiencies identified in the order, said agency spokesperson Aaron Jordan in an email. An explanation for the exemptions will be included in a revised state plan that ADEQ intends to submit in April. The plan will go out for public comment prior to being submitted to the EPA. The release for public comment is expected this month. ADEQ has consulted with EPA on the rule changes and explanations and does not anticipate a federal implementation plan to be imposed, Jordan wrote in her email. An EPA spokesperson said via email that the agency looks forward to continuing to work with ADEQ to address the Clean Air Act requirements. Clean Air Act standards for ozone have gradually become stricter over the years, forcing Arizona to chase moving targets in order to meet air quality standards. Maricopa County only recently met standards from 2008, and by 2021, it is supposed to meet even more stringent standards set in 2015. As a result, the state must upgrade its plans to reduce pollution. Among these efforts are emissions testing for vehicles, programs to encourage ride-sharing, and efforts to increase telecommuting, as well as public awareness campaigns. The plans the state submits to EPA should take effect around the time that the state submits those plans, but the agency has been slow to address them, prompting lawsuits across the country to approve plans that will help curb negative impacts of air pollution on the public's health. The plans themselves don't take effect until EPA signs off on them, or in some cases, EPA sends them back to the state, usually with the message that they don't go far enough, which is what happened in this case. 
Air pollution causes a wide variety of adverse impacts, from asthma attacks to even death. So fixing this defective permitting program will ensure Arizonans won't have to suffer these health consequences going forward, Ukele said. And that was a March 5th article from the Arizona Republic. Court orders EPA to take action on Arizona's plan to curb harmful air pollution, reported by Aaron Stone. Our next article is also from the Arizona Republic, this one reported by Lauren Castle. Juan Martinez continues misconduct fight with State Bar of Arizona. And this was published on February 25th. A well-known Maricopa County prosecutor is continuing his fight with the State Bar of Arizona, nearly two weeks after being placed on paid administrative leave. In March, the bar filed a formal misconduct complaint against Martinez, who became a national household name during the Jody Arias murder trial. The complaint claimed Martinez harassed several women who worked at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office and the Maricopa County Superior Court. It also accused Martinez of having a relationship with a blogger. Presiding disciplinary judge William J. O'Neill later dismissed the allegations from inside the county attorney's office, saying the appropriate venue for those allegations was that office. The state bar then accused the judge of abusing his discretion and acting arbitrarily and capriciously. On Monday, Martinez filed a response to the state bar's accusation. He has also asked O'Neill to also dismiss the claims from an employee at Maricopa County Superior Court. Martinez's disciplinary hearing is set for April 20th. In its complaint, the state bar accused Martinez of making comments toward a court reporter who worked at the Maricopa County Superior Court. The woman claimed she was warned by a supervisor that certain individuals are flirtatious and that she should avoid them. Martinez would make comments on her skirts, shoes, and physical appearance while she worked on the Arias case, according to the complaint. The woman claimed Martinez told her, I like the person that's in the skirt. I'd really like to see what's inside. And I really miss those skirts, according to the complaint. The complaint stated the woman felt uncomfortable and switched work times with a co-worker until her supervisor became aware of the schedule changes. Martinez's lawyer argued the State Bar did not address the specific portions of the oath of admission or creed of professionalism that had been violated. Instead, we are left to guess, but all will be revealed at trial when Mr. Martinez will finally learn what provision he has violated and must defend against, Martinez's lawyer Donald Wilson Jr. stated in his motion. However, the State Bar argued in a response that it did address what rules were violated. The State Bar cited the oath, quote, I will treat the courts of justice and judicial officers with due respect. I will support the fair administration of justice, professionalism among lawyers, and legal representation for those unable to afford counsel. While respondent continues to deny any misconduct, it is disingenuous to now suggest that he does not know which provisions of the oath and creed are applicable to his sexually inappropriate actions, the State Bar stated in its response. Wilson argued the State Bar never indicated what sections of the oath or creed Martinez violated until it gave a response to the motion to dismiss, instead of stating it in the formal complaint. 
The bar is finally able to identify what it believes he did wrong, ergo no harm, no foul, Wilson stated in court records. This approach is completely contrary to well-settled case law and the most basic rules and the most basic rules of American jurisprudence due process. Also, Martinez's lawyer stated the disciplinary hearing is not the appropriate venue for the issue. He argued the woman could have reported the issue to the Human Resources Department, the county attorney's office, the Equal Employment Oppor- the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, that's Equal EEOC Equal Employment Opportunity Commission rather, the trial judge, or filed a civil lawsuit against Martinez. The woman's lawyer, Tom Ryan, told the Arizona Republic that it would be a disgrace if there was not an evidentiary hearing on the allegations. If we can learn anything from the Harvey Weinstein trial, it is immensely difficult for any woman to report sexual harassment, Ryan said. He said victims get vilified and scorned when they do report. O'Neill granted a preliminary summary judgment addressing allegations against Martinez in August about harassment inside the county attorney's office. The judge later issued a formal ruling last month. Martinez has denied the allegations. O'Neill stated in his ruling that Martinez did not dispute the allegations concerning county attorney's office employees, but that they should not be addressed in the hearing because they did not occur during the practice of the law and needed to be addressed by Martinez's employer. When someone creates a hostile working environment and makes a co-worker feel uncomfortable, a complaint should be reported, O'Neill stated in the ruling. Mr. Martinez was reported and was properly reprimanded for the MCAO allegations. Former Maricopa County attorney Bill Montgomery wrote in a letter in April that Martinez received a written reprimand in his file and mandatory training. However, the state bar claimed in its petition that O'Neill's findings were erroneous. The state bar pointed out that the county attorney's office is not able to regulate the legal profession or to impose sanctions against a lawyer's license. Those are the responsibilities of the state bar. In the age of Me Too, sexual harassment in the workplace is no longer accepted, the State Bar stated in its petition. Absent this court's declaration that sexual harassment in the workplace by lawyers is unethical and unprofessional, neither lawyers nor the public can have any confidence that the practice of law will be free from such abhorrent behavior. Martinez's attorney stated the judge relied on rules concerning unprofessional conduct and the practice of the law when making his decision. The State Bar admits there is no specific rule regulating the interactions between an attorney and law clerks or prohibiting sexual harassment, Wilson stated. According to the response, Martinez was punished by the county attorney's office for making co-workers feel uncomfortable during lunch outings and actions and comments perceived to be inappropriate when working with law clerks. Wilson argued the state bar is wanting the Arizona Supreme Court to make a new rule and apply it to his client, which would weaken Martinez's rights to due process and create a dangerous precedent. This could allow disciplinary proceedings for any conduct the bar sees unprofessional, even if it does not deal with the practice of law, according to Wilson. In the response, Martinez's lawyer does say sexual harassment is socially undesirable and rightly prohibited in most areas of modern society. 
And that's the end of the article in the Arizona Republic, reported by Lauren Castle. Juan Martinez continues misconduct fight with the State Bar of Arizona. Well, let's finish up with this brief article from AZ Law that uh, deals not with a court case, but with the judges and the possible future judges who decide them. The headline is Senators McSally and Cinema propose a 42% increase in federal judgeships for Arizona to alleviate judicial emergency. Here is the article. Arizona Senators Martha McSally and Kirsten Cinema are proposing five new federal judgeships for Arizona, citing our expanding population and a judicial emergency. If their new bill became law, the state would jump from 12 district court judges plus one temporary judgeship to 17 permanent spots on the bench. That would be a 42% increase. The senators cite last year's recommendations of the Judicial Conference of the United States that four judgeships be added to Arizona. The senators ignore the rest of the Judicial Conference's recommendations for new judgeships elsewhere, including five new appellate judgeships for the Ninth Circuit and 68 other permanent district court judgeships around the country. Arizona's case law, as reported in the conference's recommendations, do constitute what they define as a judicial emergency. However, seven district courts around the country have more weighted filings per existing judgeship, and New Jersey, Delaware, and Indiana's Southern District have a significantly larger caseload than Arizona's. The federal bench has not been increased by Congress and the president since George W. Bush was president. Arizona was among that last batch of new judgeships. Senators McSally and Cinema have already helped nominate two replacement judges to Arizona's district court. Judge Scott Rash is awaiting a vote from the full Senate, and Judge John Hinderaker is waiting for the Judiciary Committee to forward his nomination. Arizona is one of the fastest growing states in the nation, said Cinema. McSally added that our federal judges are burdened with heavy caseloads that hinder their ability to effectively do their jobs. She also suggested it would help address crime and illegal immigration. The bill does not have a companion bill that was introduced in the House, for instance, by some of Arizona's representatives, and it would need to be approved by both the House and the Senate for the president to leap at the opportunity to sign it and nominate some new judges. That is unlikely to happen without the other overloaded states or in an election year with split control of the houses of Congress. So that article, Senators McSally and Cinema propose a 42% increase in federal judgeships for Arizona to alleviate a judicial emergency. And with that, we reach the end of this installment of AZ Law. Remember to listen or download our program wherever you find your podcast. Don't forget to subscribe as well. And since our primary purpose is to support the important services provided by Sun Sounds of Arizona, don't forget to go to their website or go to our website and find the link to Sun Sounds. Our website again is Arizona's with an S law.org. We have lots of plans to grow and improve this program in the coming months, but hey, We would appreciate your comments and suggestions to make this program even better. You can email me at paul.weich.azlaw at gmail.com. Weich is spelled W-E-I-C-H. And with that, I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Weich, thanking you for listening to AZ Law, and we'll see you again later. (music) 